Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is August 19th, 2017. And this is an In Case You Haven't Read It episode on the recently released third edition of the Emergency Management Framework for Canada. In this episode, we'll be providing an in-depth look at the framework, which was released this past May, and reviewing some of the changes and what they mean, reading it so you don't have to. We will also be looking at the background and context of the framework, and we'll address what this document means for EM professionals, how it fits into practice, and whether or not it is even useful. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Now, there's no shortage of federal documents, frameworks, and acts within the government, but in the realm of emergency management, there are only a few in particular that stand out. And one really foundational document that every emergency manager needs to know about is the Emergency Management Framework for Canada. That's right. It's basically Canadian EM 101 and details at its most basic level the priorities, components, principles, structures, and definitions which any successful EM program or initiative should be built on. It's the formative document for all other Canadian EM documents, and it's referenced heavily in acts such as the Emergency Management Act. Recently, as part of a five-year review cycle, the third edition was released. But before we get going, as always... Acronym. Let's define a few key terms. All right, to start, UNISDR, that's the United Nations International Strategy for Disaster Reduction. DRR, Disaster Risk Reduction. DFAA, Disaster Financial Assistance Arrangements. FDRP, Flood Damage Reduction Program. And the FPT, the Federal Provincial Territorial Ministers. SOREM, S-O-R-E-M, that's the Senior Officials Responsible for Emergency Management. And EMFC, or the Framework. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So now that's out of the way, let's start where the Framework came from. So it was originally published in 2007, and it's gone undergone a couple of uh, different changes. And it was generated in response to a 2004 Council of the Federation meeting, where the need for increased collaboration surrounding emergency management work at a federal, provincial, and territorial level was identified. It's a collaboration between FPT governments and ministers, and it's designed to promote a common, informed approach to EM initiatives in Canada. So basically, the premiers all decided they were going to get their respective ministers responsible for emergency management to get together and collaborate with the different levels of government. It's based on disaster theory and best practice, as well as some of the international agreements and frameworks such as the Sendai Framework and the Paris Agreement. So, by way of refresher, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, which covers 2015 to 2030, is a product of the UNISDR uh, and was created in 2015 at the third UN World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction. It has 187 countries collaborating and is the third agreement of its kind, with its predecessors being the Hyogo Framework and the Yokohama Agreement. This Sendai Framework for Action aims to achieve this substantial reduction of disaster uh, risk and losses in lives, livelihoods and health, and in the economic, physical, social, cultural and environmental assets of persons, business and communities and countries over the next 15 years. So it's a pretty expansive document, but it boils down to four priorities for actions. And these are understanding disaster risk, strengthening disaster risk governance, investing in resilience and disaster reduction, and enhancing disaster preparedness to build back better. Most recently, ministers met to discuss the Sendai framework at the fifth regional platform for DRR in the Americas on March 7th to 9th in Montreal. 
Uh, so after this meeting, they came up with the Montreal Declaration, in which they basically recommitted to implementing the Sendai framework with a focus on disaster risk management and a whole of society approach. Uh, I have no doubt that this Montreal Declaration influenced in some way uh, the changes for the third edition of this framework. That's right. And, and another guiding document that's referenced is the Paris Agreement. So this is getting well into the realm of climate change, but it was one of the agreements of the United Nations, uh, the 21st meeting of its kind, and basically set the ambitious 2% goal between 195 countries uh, to try and reduce overall uh, carbon emissions. So on to the framework. The purpose of this policy level framework is to guide and strengthen the way government and partners assess risks and work together to prevent, mitigate, prepare, respond, and recover from the threats and hazards that pose the greatest risks to Canadians. Uh, it does this by highlighting the priorities of emergency management, defining the core components of emergency management, those four pillars that we're so familiar with, uh, offering 10 key principles for EM initiatives, defining basic FPT government structure, and then providing some standardized definitions of EM terms and vernacular, uh, which is, I think, one of the most important things that it does. And what it is not, it's definitely not the document you want to pull out during an actual disaster. It won't be very helpful. It's a high-level policy document. Um, as a quick anecdote, it reminds me of a, a disaster response I was involved with during a, a flooding event where I opened up an emergency plan only to find a four-page definition of what a flood is and what the various <laughs> types of floods are. So not super helpful in an actual disaster, no. but foundational. Exactly. Not technical in any sense of the word. So the two most established sections of this framework are the EM components and the principles section. So in the EM components section, it highlights uh, the basic priorities of emergency management. And you'll be familiar with these. These are to save lives, preserve environment, protect property and the economy. And then it talks about these EM components of prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response and recovery, uh, often referred to as phases or pillars of emergency management. This is that common language piece and a common approach to developing programs. That's right. Then it moves on to offer the 10 principles of emergency management. So these are the key underlying beliefs and goals that kind of support the overall concept of operation and are supposed to inform policies, programs, and procedures. They include responsibility, comprehensiveness, partnerships, coherency of action, risk-based, all hazards, resilience, clear communications, continuous improvements, and ethical. And the ethical part was added in the second edition and continued now in the third. So if uh, that was hard to remember, then there's a little acronym. It's R-C-P-C-R-A-R-C-C-E. Don't know how helpful that was, but there you go. <laughs> That's the worst acronym I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. All right. So after that, it, it moves on to describe the federal, provincial, and territorial governance structure. So this is a structure only. Uh, this is not an act, so it does not speak to the specific requirements or responsibilities or roles. That's more within the Emergency Management Act. Um, and the basic structure is at the top, we have our FPT ministers, followed by our deputy ministers. And then we have our SOREM. So if you remember, that's the senior officials responsible for emergency management. And that, this is kind of new, is in line with Canada's platform for DRR Advisory Committee. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and then underneath that are working groups based on the four components or other priorities as needed. So that's the emergent sort of side of things. Uh, Within this framework, it stresses that the working groups will likely be interdisciplinary in nature and engage a lot of different partners as required. 
And then we move into a segment which is talking about the way forward. And this is an emphasis on shared responsibility and a whole of society approach, which really encourages use of the document to enhance collaboration and coordination. There's a glossary at the end, and that's maybe the most useful part. It has some standardized definitions which are different from those other countries use, sometimes in important ways. So that's our rapid overview of the document and its background, and, and hopefully it was really just a review for you, as, as this really is Emergency Management 101. So now you're probably thinking, well, that sounds an awful lot like the second edition. Uh, what actually changed? Good question, especially considering that that was what this episode is supposed to be about. <laughs> yeah. So after a side-by-side -side analysis of the two documents, uh, they've added a few graphics and some clarifying sentences. Uh, there is a clear purpose statement, but I, I think it's fair to say that there aren't very many radical differences, and they read pretty similarly. The four-component approach to viewing EM is the same, and the 10 principles of EM haven't changed a bit. There are, however, a few additions that while maybe common sense and sort of uh, a little bit nitpicky, are, I think, extremely important for emergency managers of any description. New in this edition is the increased emphasis on other formative frameworks and agreements, such as the Sendai framework, the Hyogo and the Yokohama agreements and the Paris agreement, and of course the UN Sustainable Development Goals. This change culminates in the inclusion of the Canada Platform for DRR Advisory Committee within the FBT governance structure, which is roughly at the same level as the SOREM group. Although these agreements and frameworks were mentioned and certainly formative in previous editions, they seem to be given much more weight and authority as of 2017. Also new in this edition is the way in which resilience is discussed in terms of an all-of-society issue. Uh, the biggest change here, I think, is the change in what the framework considers key attributes of societal resilience. In the old edition, the, the second edition, uh, there's a list of generic attributes such as robustness, redundancy, self-organization, and efficiency, which don't really mean a whole lot. So in this edition, uh, it's more specific and it uses the terms evidence-based risk assessments, strong public awareness, and com community engagement initiatives. So although the definition of resilience didn't change in the glossary, interestingly enough, the term resistant, so disaster-resistant communities, was struck from this edition. So there's this old thought of uh, disaster-resistant communities um, and that was very much in line with the structural mitigation era. Uh, and now there's more of a shift towards resilience, and I think this, this change in language reflects that. Perhaps the most important change, however, is the formalized addition of the term climate change. In the glossary, you'll find a brand new definition of climate change, which, in no uncertain terms, clarifies the minister's position on the matter. In quotes, Climate change refers to a change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of the global atmosphere and which is in addition to natural climate variability observed over comparable time periods." End quote. This definition is echoed throughout the document, with a distinction being made between climate and environmental change, and the link between climate change and an increase in frequency and magnitude of other natural disasters. So what does the EM framework for Canada have to offer to the, the EM responder on the ground? Uh, and what do these changes really mean? Well, hopefully we've impressed upon you the importance of this formative document in terms of providing a common language or nomenclature, standardized definitions, guiding principles, and a standard FPT approach to EM. It's a great reference when coming up with your own program or initiative, and although it speaks in sweeping, non-technical terms, it does a good job of getting everyone on the same page.
even though there's only 22 of them. That's right. Yeah. As far as the changes go, I think this new edition strives to further establish a, a useful way to think about resilience uh, and further clarifies the ideal all of society approach. Uh, it also means that you might find it very difficult to be both a climate denier and uh, EM professional in Canada. I think you'll have to choose one or the other uh, and seems to pave the way for an associated legislation um, to grow more teeth regarding the issue of climate change. Now let's talk a little bit about critiques. One of the earliest critiques of the framework can be found in a 2008 Senate report, which is officially titled Emergency Management in Canada, How the Fine Arts of Baffle Gab and Procrastination Hobble the People Who Will Be Trying to Save You When Things Get Really Bad. Best title ever. (laughs) Indeed. Now, this has to be required reading for any EM professional. Uh, This (laughs) is a great critique and a good historical overview of some of the challenges we've had uh, bureaucratically and and politically in, in Canada over the years. I think one excerpt about the framework is useful, and they say, a framework is one thing. Improved policies, procedures, programs, and activities are another thing. In fact, they're the main things. And here we enter a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario where we certainly need some sort of foundational document, but many critics say we're lacking all the operational components still that make that foundational document useful or even relevant. So that's certainly uh, an issue for another episode, but something to consider. Yeah, and although that document's a little bit older at this point, it still definitely holds true. So another mandatory reading, I think, uh, is a article by Henstra and Thistlethwaite from May 2017, which is the same time as, as this framework came out. It's called Overcoming Barriers to Meeting the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. First and foremost, it's a great review of the Sendai framework. Uh, It definitely applies it more specifically to Canadian emergency management and focuses on Canada's most costly and common hazard, which is flooding. Uh, It identifies several challenges based on those Sendai framework four priorities that we mentioned, which are, again, understanding disaster risk, strengthening disaster risk governance, uh, investing in disaster reduction, and then enhancing disaster preparedness. So some of the barriers and gaps in Canadian emergency management that he identifies in this article are that policies are often only advised by the likelihood of the hazard and not by these more complex Uh, concepts such as exposure and vulnerability. So there's a a large gap in terms of what's being prepared for if you're only looking at likelihood. Um, He also cites a lack of standardization of risk assessments as a a detriment to effective decision making. So it's very hard to compare region to region or place to place if they're using different risk assessment criteria. He also points out some more general themes in emergency management, such as uh, unclear responsibilities and limited or ineffective engagement with stakeholders. But he does have one really interesting point, uh, which is more of like an ethical or abstract point. He, He calls it a moral hazard. And in this context, he's referring to how easy it is to get disaster recovery funding compared to how easy it is to get uh, mitigation and preparedness funding. So in Canada, disaster recovery funding is is very easily uh, accessible, but the preparation funding is not. So it creates almost a, a counter um, a counter incentive to undertaking mitigative efforts. And one of the examples that comes up again and again is, is land use planning. There's a huge economic incentive to develop on floodplains, for example, and not a whole lot of incentive um, to undertake mitigative efforts because when the flood happens, the government just bails you out. And that's a, a sort of learned behavior. 
To address these issues, Henstra offers three key policy recommendations within the federal level. So one, he wants to standardize the disaster risk analysis structure and make that standardized structure mandatory. This would make decision making a lot easier because you'd have comparable data sets across different areas. Uh, he also wants a national coordination strategy on disaster risk reduction, which is interesting because under federal legislation at the moment, the responsibility for these strategies let, rests at the provincial level. So there might be a little bit of tweaking needed uh, for this to happen. And then the final and probably most important recommendation is risk sharing through flood insurance in high risk areas. So this is the private and public sort of conglomeration for flood insurance, which would incentivize property owners to undertake mitigation issues, but also not be completely unaffordable because once a disaster happens, then federal funding would still kick in. So clearly, there's still a lot of ground to be made up. There are still some gaps in EM legislation and policy uh, before this framework and the Sendai framework turn into practice. Uh, but there are some ways forward that Henstra and Thistlethwaite propose. And as always, Henstra writes really well. Um, he's a prolific writer on all things policy, so definitely a recommended read. Okay, now on to tools of the trade. So this episode, we're going to talk about preventionweb.net. If you haven't been to this website, you have to go. It's a great hub for all sorts of technical documents, articles, government documents, training aids, uh, even some job opportunities. It's a collaborative website, uh, so um, kind of puts you in touch with a community of other uh, EM professionals. Certainly a good place to stop by, preventionweb.net. And that's all for this In Case You Haven't Read It episode of Epic Podcast on the third edition of the Emergency Management Framework for Canada. And we realized there was a lot of acronyms and baffle gab in this episode. <laughs> uh, so our upcoming episodes are going to be a little bit more hands-on. Uh, we just thought this was an important document to get out there in case you haven't read it. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool to the emergency management professional. And the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, 